Welcome to the podcast, The White Bikini. My name is Marie White, along with my co-host, Nicholas Banton. How are you, Nicholas? I'm well, Marie. Thank you for having me today. Our topic today is something that, Nick, you and I have talked about. I think I started talking about it five years ago, about how I missed the 90s. I missed the 90s, too. Um, I think it was a wonderful time of life in America. I think I was getting ahead of the curve. My interest in the 90s has kind of had jump-started again with the current book and articles regarding the book, The 90s, from Chuck Klosterman. And he's kind of taking a back, a look back at the 90s, thinking that it's kind of been an underrated decade, which I have thought for at least 10 years. And he calls it the last collaborate, collaborative decade. That's an interesting idea. What does he mean by that? I think more how I take it, reading his articles and part some of the book, which I've started, is the last decade and I'm just going to say, as an American society, for water cooler talk, the 90s were a decade that we could okay, go into I work. Think I understand. I always, I feel this is kind of a tired reference, but you could always say, hey, did you see the new Seinfeld? Did you see the new Cheers? We were limited to what we were watching in the early to mid 90s, as there was more than three channels but there were certainly not the landscape of what you're able to watch today. Yeah, that's certainly certainly correct. I think that is before the whole landscape, as you put it, of the 500 cable channels. And certainly the internet was in its infancy. So I, I do agree. And there I was do times that you, if you missed a show, you missed it and you waited for the reruns. That is odd to think about it today. Uh, reruns or the good old VCR. Um, I, I still remember looking through the TV guide, memories of looking through the TV guide and trying to match the uh, TV code and, and trying to put that into your VCR as if just getting your uh, VCR not to flash 12 o'clock all day. But at the same time, if there enough. was a TV show you wanted to watch, it would force, whether it be family, members, friends, you had to come together and agree that you were going to watch the show because there wasn't so many TVs in everyone's rooms at that point either. That is, that's correct. I, I, I do remember that as well. And also another consequence of being in the same place and same space at the same time is you are forced to interact with whether it be friends or family and it would spark conversations which I think is one of the foundations of healthy societies. People communicating with each other about their ideas, be they um, And you would have to compromise. You would say, okay, you know what? You can watch something at eight, I'll watch something at nine. And it would force you together to talk and be more collaborative. Yes, uh, that, that certainly was the case. Um, you know, a big screen TV at the time is, I suppose, if you're wealthy, you might get one of those old fashioned um, projection screen TVs that were, you know, a foot or two deep. Um, and that was good living. Um, people, people shared common spaces and had common experiences. And I had this white TV with a VCR attached to it. When I had to you get rid of it. Large. 
probably 10 years ago, I almost cried because though I didn't miss it, I had access to a million channels. I felt that it was the end of an era and it symbolized something much more simple for me. I think many people would agree with that. Uh, the age of going to Blockbuster or West Coast Video and you'd have to interact with the people at the store. You'd interact sometimes with the customers. If you went on a weekend and there was a new release, you'd probably see your friends there or your friend's parents and you'd say hi, hello, and you'd spark a conversation. Um, it goes back to the idea of communicating, interacting with people that were in your community. And if you were bringing back a, like a new release, people would be waiting, you would hand it to them, you check it out, they would give it to someone else. And there was that sense of community. And I sometimes think, when's the last day that I rent it from Blockbuster? I still have my card. If you can remember, you have definitely bested me. I, I cannot remember when that transition occurred. Um, I would imagine sometime around the release of affordable DVD players. Um, I, I'm not sure. That's a really interesting question. In terms of television, because we have a couple things we're going to go over for pop culture regarding the 90s. But in terms of television, for my personal experience, when I knew things were changing was with Sex in the City and The Sopranos. When for you did the 90s start? For me, the 90s started on a very specific date. And that date was September 10th, 1991. And it was marked by the release of Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana. I think if there's an incipient start to the 90s, nothing quite captures the ethos of that decade better than the release of that album and the consequence and the representation of that album throughout that 10-year period of American society. I can still hear the chords of Smells Like Teen Spirit, and I'm sure at the time I was driving in my car listening to FM radio because I didn't really have a CD player and being startled and stopped in my tracks and I thought, there's something new here. I We're going somewhere with this. completely agree. It was one of those moments where I had never really heard anything quite like it. I, I can't say that I remember precisely where I was. It's more of a, a general sense of what's this? This is cool. I need to get more of this. I need to find out who these guys are, what they're about, and if they have anything else to say artistically. And for me, that was the turning point in music and then with movies, even though it came out in 1989, this was a game changer when I saw this movie, which was Spike Lee Do the Right Thing. Without a doubt. Spike Lee was able to capture uh, a particular perspective of urban living and the interaction, the interracial reactions in that setting, highlighting some of the challenges, but also pointing to some hopeful outcomes. I think Spike Lee was, in a sense, you could have think of do, do the Right Thing as a dramatic story about telling the truth. The truth that we face in our society as Americans, as we related to each other, each other across race and, and 
socioeconomic lines. And I think for we're in two different generations. I do consider myself a very early Gen Xer. I don't really consider myself a baby boomer, and I feel sometimes those things are outdated because everyone's experience is different. But I think Spike Lee was bringing to the forefront of Hollywood what the black community was going through. Where my mother's generation, my mother was sixty-one or sixty in nineteen ninety-one. She was the greatest generation, so something like that startled her because at that point you could block out what you didn't want to see. But as the '90s proved to us, we could only run so far from it. Yes, I would definitely agree with that. I think Spike Lee was able to capture that spirit and project it on a very large screen across movie theaters throughout America, and it forced. Conversations. It forced conversations about race. It forced conversations about the neglect of urban America. And、uh, the word that comes to mind is authenticity. He was able to authentically capture a very complex intersection of politics and history, economics, and human psychology. As it relates to what it means to be an American, American、uh, of African American descent, American of European descent, and that very complex history that has been with us for 400 years, in a in a very captivating, dramatic way. And so, I think you're absolutely right about do the right thing. As much as smells like Teen Spirit spoke to us in music, do the right thing spoke to us. And I do believe、film. his character Mookie was important. Because I don't want to say this, but he was almost a well-behaved black man, so he could always be the voice of reason. And he was surrounded by such anger, whether it be the pizza owner, the people in the neighborhood. He kind of was living and had to transition into each world to keep the peace in a microcosm of just his neighborhood, which really was the world. It truly was, and I, I, another interesting aspect of Mookie's existence was that he had to navigate these worlds every day, and it, it's a very difficult thing. You know, and speaking from the perspective of a person of color, an African American, it's just required that if you're going to thrive in the society, you need the skills to navigate an African American experience. Uh, a corporate white American experience, and just a larger experience of being a minority in the society, and certainly in the '90s, that was far more relevant. You know, we're transitioning as a society in the 21st century, but I, I think that was one of the reasons why Mookie was such an important character, and what his what he had to say on screen resonated with audiences across the country. And to go back to do the right thing is when I saw Rosie Perez in the beginning dancing to fight the power. I had never seen anything like that. So along with the character development and what I was experiencing in Do the Right Thing, fight the power was the first sound that I was said. There's another, along with Nirvana, smells like Teen Spirit. It was kind of the beginning of hip hop really coming out to the forefront of mainstream. 
much like, as you said, much like the release of Smells Like Teen Spirit, uh, the 90s were represented, the, I think, the golden age of hip-hop. Uh, Biggie, Tupac, Dr. Trace, uh, Snoop Dogg. All these bands, all these groups, uh, LL Cool J, I think they, they either cut their teeth in the 90s or essentially perfected the art of rap and, 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 the, and hip hop culture. And I think what we're dealing with in, in the 21st century is just uh, the, the child of that creative movement. But yes, I think do the um, fight the power of Rosie Perez dancing. That was that was a powerful aesthetic statement that Spike Lee was communicating to the audience. And I'm I'm sure based on your experience, you either saw a really good dancer dancing to a song with a driving beat and a powerful message, or you read something that was politically a little bit disturbing. But it was it depended on your perspective and it depended on the life that you uh, lived to that point and whether or not you were able to see the layers of complexity that Spike Lee had woven into do the right thing. I saw anger in that dance. I saw resistance, but I suppose anger fuels resistance. But yes, I, I would definitely say I understand your perspective. So we know where the 90s started. And I don't think we could really talk about the 90s because I do encapsulate the 90s, 92 to 94, and almost 94 to 97 without discussing OJ Simpson. Slow police chase down that LA highway, the helicopters overhead, the wall-to-wall -wall news coverage. The broader implications on wealth and access and privilege and race and class, the death of two human beings, it was the most, and I say this with all due respect to the lives that were lost, Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown Simpson. It was for America, and I suspect for the broader world, it was almost the greatest show on earth with all the tragedy that it held and the bizarre spectacle of this American hero now essentially fighting for his freedom along with the recognition of the immense loss, the death of a mother, the death of a son. It was it was a modern Shakespearean tragedy happening in real life on our television screens night after night after night after night. And the, the racial undertones, at the time I felt them, but even looking back now, were so, it was black versus white. The African-American community thought he was being targeted. The white community thought Nicole Simpson had kind of set herself up for this to happen by I completely agree, and, and I, I like the way you him. presented it. She had it coming, and I think that's kind of the that's one of the ugliness of the the whole affair. That for some people uh, in conservative white America, she had it coming because she had broken one of the most important social taboos: marrying a black man and having children. And 
it's truly sad. But a positive consequence of that was you couldn't deny that's the way you felt. And at some point, going to the idea of water cooler conversations, that conversation was had all over America. And I think as you alluded to, she became essentially the perpetrator of her own death. And the ugliness behind that sentiment, I think, forced a lot of people to reconsider what is racism? I think America is very comfortable now, 50, 60 years removed from a bunch of hillbillies wearing white sheets and holding torches burning a cross on someone's lawn as that's racism that's the that's bad but the idea of a an ivy league educated upper middle class suburban white man white woman white family holding the idea that nicole brown simpson was complicit in her own death because she chose to marry a black man and that's what you get because you know that's how they are I don't think America was ready to have that conversation, but I think OJ and the case and everything that surrounded it forced those conversations to be had. And as a obviously a, a white woman, I do remember at the time my friends alluding to, well, she was reckless. She was dating someone else. She had it coming to her. And no one really thought of what she was going through it was more of oj and her asking for it yeah i i absolutely remember that that sense as well that somehow there was a lack of empathy there was a lack of sympathy for nicole brown and ron goldman i i recognize that oj certainly was a superstar and he was the one with the movies and had the prestigious football career but even as a child, I think I was in maybe the ninth grade when that happened. I was struck by the sense of a lack of empathy for Nicole Brown. And while I recognize that a lot of people were pro-OJ for political reasons, I think within the black community, I don't think it was necessarily that, hey, you know, that Nicole Brown got what was coming to her. It was, I think for a lot of African-Americans, OJ was... I hope, I hope we win this one. I, I, we just need to win one. And OJ Simpson, for all his failings, for all, for as much as I think he turned his back on the black community, um, once he achieved a certain level of fame and celebrity, in the end, black people rallied around him. It wasn't to, re it wasn't to deny Nicole Simpson justice per se, but at the end of the day. OJ Simpson was a black man and I think African-Americans wanted to believe that there was some chance that an African-American man as flawed as OJ Simpson was could somehow win in the system that had abused and disregarded our lives for 400 years and I think that's what it comes down to. I understand that's not an easy thing to look at from a legalistic perspective because I think the evidence points to O.J. Simpson as being the, the, the murderer. But the larger cultural zeitgeist cannot be ignored. 
the court of public opinion was split along racial lines and white America saw one story, one narrative and black America saw another narrative. And I definitely think the guilty verdict, the not guilty verdict divided the white and black community. I remember where I was, I was working in a department store that like the 90s really went out of business in 1996 in the TV area. And when the guilty verdict, the not guilty verdict was read, I would say I was mostly surrounded by white people. They gasped. And I was, the African-American community that I was working with burst out in applause. And I remember feeling that divide very uncomfortably. I, I witnessed it too. I, I believe I was in the lunchroom when that verdict was read. And it was a similar situation. I went to a school that was predominantly white upper middle class. There was a small community of black students there. And it was a similar divide. There's a smattering of white students that felt that were pro OJ, but it was scorn, contempt, disappointment, shock, anger that I saw across the faces of mostly white students in that cafeteria. And I was immediately, I, the moment wasn't necessarily lost in me. I was immediately struck by the idea that black students were not celebrating the death of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Gold. They were celebrating the idea that somehow this system, the, the criminal justice system in America, a black man could win. And as ugly as that idea is, when you come from that kind of abusive relationship with law enforcement and the criminal justice system, it will put you in that place where you can celebrate um, something like that. And I think for white America, it was in some ways, it was their worst fears come true. It was the black menace killing one of their own and getting away with it. And that was a horrible, that was a, it was a horror show. And I don't think until he was charged with her murder that white America actually considered OJ to be black. But the moment they thought that he committed that- That is an interesting- that, Yeah, sorry. No, no, I apologize. Go ahead. No, the moment he committed that murder, suddenly he was black. Yes. Uh, that was exactly the sentiment. I And I think- OJ, uh, to his discredit, I think also bought into that mythology as well. Agreed. Um, I think, you know, stars like Michael Jackson and Michael Jordan of the previous decade, and certainly they were relevant in the 90s, I, I think fame shielded them from race. And then OJ Simpson learned very quickly that he was black. And white America reminded him very quickly that he was indeed black. And so the idea of race, I think, is a very complex issue. But one perspective that is perhaps relevant as we discuss O.J. Simpson is that I think for white America that finds discussing race uncomfortable, they want O.J. Simpsons. Because for every O.J. Simpson you can point to, you can then use it to dismiss any grievance that the black community has and just simply say, Hey, pull your pants up and work hard. 
And then when OJ Simpson was no longer the poster boy for that political message, he was reminded that, you know what? You're not one of us. You belong on the other side. And we have no, we have no use for you. I think, I mean, I think hip hop is a little bit more complex than that, uh, if I may push back on that a little bit, but I think it, it opened up hip hop in the sense that hip hop artists, particularly young black men, felt completely vindicated and empowered to speak about the abuses of the criminal justice system, specifically the police um, in in large urban communities in LA, in New York City, Philadelphia, Detroit, Miami. You listen to hip hop music during that period. Every album, there's almost always one song where the artist is describing in the interaction with the police. And so perhaps in that sense, I think the OJ Simpson trial and verdict and the entire experience paralleled with some of the ideas and some of the the themes that are discussed that were being discussed rather by hip-hop artists Yes, it definitely brought people together. Um, and when it brought them together, one of the consequences of bringing people together, is it sometimes highlights the fact that we don't share the same realities. And some of our perspectives are just downright delusional. I think I, I think I can be a critic of both communities as we're as we've been discussing the white and black community, I think. The black community needs to own the fact that O.J. Simpson, beyond a reasonable doubt, killed those two human beings. Uh, and I think the white community needs to own the fact that far too many innocent black men are in fact prosecuted and sentenced to long or indefinite jail term sentences. I think those are two, two th truths that we can pull from that reality 30 years removed. Yes, yes, I, I share that sentiment. You've got mail. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think AOL was transformative. Trans AOL was our on-ramp, and it was an on-ramp with kitty wheels that allowed Americans to explore this brave new world called 
the World Wide Web and Information Superhighway. AOL was this fantastic place where you could disappear into if you had a modem and you got one of those countless disks that they would mail you. Uh, it seemed like they would mail you 15 of them a week, but you would log on and you could disappear into this world. They had the chat rooms and they had message boards. It was, I think it was an opportunity for Americans, for internet users to find a place. Because let's face it, a lot of us, you know, we go to work, we have our families, but we don't necessarily share the interests. We don't share common interests with our neighbors and friends. Um, and AOL gave us that opportunity. It was the first chance for Americans to find their niche. Yeah, it totally did. It made it too easy for people to disconnect from re base reality. And I think to a certain extent, we're dealing with that right now where, I mean, if 25 years ago, you told me that a 19 year old teenager could be making millions of dollars putting on makeup and dancing um, in 10, 20 second video clips, I would tell you that you are not feeling well. But <clears throat> they, have a, they have a word for it, it's called TikTok. So you're right, you're right. It's, it made it very easy for people to disconnect. It made it very easy for young people, especially, to tune out their parents and tune out the older generation and completely disregard what they had to say. Uh, disregard the wisdom. Yes, there's a lot of noise out there, but there's also a lot of wisdom. Yes, it really did. Um, you, I just remember coming home from school and logging into AOL and that distinctive modem connection sound. Uh, I can hear it playing in my mind. And uh, just, just exploring, it felt almost like exploring, an astronaut exploring a new planet. And it was fascinating, it was interesting. The idea that you could have a, a conversation with someone on the other side of the uh, the, the country or the, another place in the world, and it it was it was so new and engrossing. It was it was fantastic. It's like every day you went out there, you discovered a new trail or a new path or something just really magical. And I think being a a, a young teenager on the internet in the sort of the wild, wild west days of the internet um, uh, and the World Wide Web was was just, a, 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 it's an experience that I think uh, I wish uh, Generation Z and the younger millennials uh, wish they had that experience because I don't think they can relate to the idea of tying up their parents' landline for hours upon hours and having someone yell at them to get off the phone. Yes. No, it, it, 
Yeah, that was definitely a unique experience for a, a particular period of time. But yeah, AOL was was fantastic. I, I mean, AOL was the one of the biggest communications companies of the 90s. Uh, the amount of money that they made in advertisement was phenomenal. They were growing, they were getting ready to shake the world, and then the dot-com bubble burst, ad revenue dried up, and there's something kind of peculiar to AOL that I think perhaps at the time we didn't recognize is that AOL was its own network. So when you dialed into AOL, you went to AOL land. It's like going to Disneyland and expecting to see, um, I don't know, like the Grand Canyon or something like that. And I think after a while, users became found that experience limited, especially with the advent of broadband, where you had faster high-speed connections you didn't need to type your phone and you could go anywhere on the internet and there were more there was more content and more uh, more websites and interesting things you could do and buy and see on the internet and after a while AOL just felt like an old farm town compared to this new broadband powered internet and so between its own limitations, its own built-in limitations, as well as the economic landscape, um, AOL essentially declined almost as fast as it rose. There you go. It's a very interesting and neat piece of uh, trivia right there. But yes, it's Amazon, it's uh, PayPal, um, Elon Musk's old company, that it's all these little things that are just seamless parts of what we consider to be the modern day internet, that they were building it. They were literally building the, 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 the roadway, the rest stops, the guardrails of the information superhighway during the 90s. And it was, it was a fantastic and it was a little bit scary. It was a little bit turbulent. And uh, good on you for uh, that little bookstore reference. I think most people have no idea that's how Amazon started as a uh, as a just almost a mom and pop type bookstore. Who would have imagined? No, I think the the sense of the turning millennium. Um, I think. Uh, Y2K started to gain traction in the conversation. People, you know, going back to the idea of water cooler conversations, I think the idea of Y2K and all the sort of uh, new millennium apocalyptic visions uh, started to become part of the conversations. But I, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I think you can, as you said initially, there are two to three year periods of the 90s that within themselves, you could probably spend volumes cataloging and discussing in terms of their impact on the, gen the, the years that came after and what each one of those blocks of uh, years represented in terms of cultural, technological, economic, social, legal history throughout the 90s and beyond.
Yeah, Biggie and Tupac. I think for many young people, and not just black, let's just face it, if it were simply black people buying hip-hop albums, uh, hip-hop music would not be where it is today. I think in the same way when we heard Smells Like Teen Spirit back in 1991, I think when people heard Biggie speak and heard, finally got to hear what Tupac had to say, it resonated. And when you think about it, one of the common themes that you heard from Kurt Cobain and you heard from Biggie Smalls and you heard from Tupac Shakur was the rejection of the lies that we'd constructed about what America is and isn't. Yes, there was misogyny and there was violence and there was uh, drug use. But I think to focus on those themes solely, you miss the point of why young people in the 90s were listening to Nirvana and they were listening to Biggie and they were listening to Tupac and so many other voices. Is It's because those people, as far as we were concerned, they were telling the truth. It may have been an ugly truth. It was not the polite, refined, white tablecloth truth that I think many Americans want to believe in, but they were truth tellers. And I think that authenticity will always have a place as long as there is art. Yes, I, I would agree. And, and I think towards uh, the latter half of the 90s, I, I think technology became the driver. Uh, I think people started looking towards almost the, the, the Jetsons' future, flying cars, big screen TVs, powerful computers. And if, if our present is any indication, that assessment was pretty close. I think people were wanted a new kind of optimism towards the end of the 90s. I think people were looking to the 2000s with a new sense of optimism, whereas I think while the 90s started off as a new decade, it, it also was a continuation of the Reagan years and the old baby boomers and the greatest generation. They were still speaking and kids weren't listening. But when the heroes, when the truth tellers, as some might say, died, I think there was a sense of further dissatisfaction and frustration. And I think people started to, instead of looking towards people, people, uh, the young, the youth started looking towards technology. And I think that's what we saw. We saw people becoming obsessed. We saw Americans becoming obsessed with technology towards the latter half of the 90s. Unfortunately, the 90s ended in tragedy. As far as I'm concerned, the 90s ended September 11th, 2001, with the attack on World Trade Towers, the downing of the plane in Shanksville, and the attack on the Pentagon. 
I, I think if you had to bookend that period, it would be September 10th, 1991 being the start. And as we discussed, the release of Smells Like Teen Spirit. And the end of the decades was September 11th. It was a tragic period in our lives. And it started decades of war, military spending, further fracturing of our society, hardening of the social faults that runs throughout our society, less engagement, less civic um, positivity. The people felt more empowered to say what they felt, even if they weren't informed. And so we started to see these cottage industries popping up on the internet where voices from all over the political spectrum and the social spectrum started speaking their own truths. And people started gathering like moths to a plane, to a flame, but a flame of a particular persuasion that resonated with their own belief system, which further added to the continuing fracturing of American society to the point where a former president of the United States Incredibly, one would argue, inspired the attack on his own country by telling, <clears throat> excuse me, his followers to go and attack the U.S. Capitol. So this is where we are. And I think in some strange roundabout way, we can draw these lines directly from the failings of, so of our society, OJ and Tupac and Biggie to some of the social problems we're having right now and the expression in Black Lives Matter and the Capitol riots and the rise of uh, uh, Donald Trump and Trumpism and even the, the controversy surrounding Joe Rogan and his inability to tell the truth or at least tell the truth from his perspective. A lot of those, a lot of what we see today, they have their roots in the 1990s. Yes, but what they failed to recognize is that the country that they held on to, at least the country in their minds, was one that was a myth because they didn't have to engage with the black community or the brown community or the LGBTQ community. So we're fighting these shadow wars in our society because we're not really engaging with each other. We're engaging with these, these quixotic enemies like Don Quixote attacking windmills. Um, as, as much as we seem to be at each other's throats, when we dig deep, we come to realize that the thing that you are arguing for or against, it's not even something that I'm saying, which is a weird thing about what's going on in contemporary America. It's that we're fighting each other, but we can't even decide, we can't even decide what we're fighting about. But in the words of the great auteur, Spike Lee, sometimes, as you would say, Marie, you just got to do the right thing. Thank you, Marie. This was a wonderful conversation.